Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And the other day I was riding on Metro, zooming underground somewhere or other, when I caught two people, maybe in their 20s, having a conversation I must have heard at least a thousand times before. They were discussing life in Washington and the people who live here. And one of them said to the other, you know, nobody's actually from D.C. I mean, everyone comes from somewhere else. Now, it is true our fair city does have its share of people passing through, political migrants and whatnot, changing with administrations. But the fact of the matter is, D.C.'s roots are anything but shallow. And that's what we're setting out to prove this week. As we bring you a show we're calling The Descendants. Over the next hour, we'll present stories of notable Washingtonians and the generations that have followed them. We'll hear how one woman discovered her Native American heritage and is working to keep that culture alive. We'll talk with someone who descends from not one, not two, but three signers of the Declaration of Independence. And we'll catch up with the daughter of one of D.C.'s best-known civil rights leaders. We'll begin today's show with a family whose roots extend back to colonial times and whose branches intertwine with those of the father of our country. But our story doesn't start in America. No, records indicate that the patriarch of our family actually comes from Canada. Everything that we have in terms of the family lore suggests that he was in Canada and came south. Steve Hammond is talking about his great-great-great-great-grandfather, William Anderson Syfax, born in 1773. He ended up in Virginia, in Alexandria, and spent his time in the streets uh, being a preacher. Steve's been researching his family line for a while, and though he hasn't found any pictures showing what William looked like, he has unearthed a document containing clues. And you can see down here at the bottom, number 409, basically says William Syfax, a mulatto man, aged about 60 years, 5 feet 6 and a half inches high, with gray, bushy hair and a small black mole under his left eye, and who was set free by Thomas Barocas and Samuel Wheeler by deed, dated 21st of November, 1817. Steve's reading from the Free Slave Register in Arlington. But even though William Anderson Syfax was a manumitted or freed slave, not all of his children were. Like his son Charles, born in 1790 or 1791. Charles Syfax was originally at Mount Vernon, This is Steve Hammond's cousin, Craig Syfax. Craig's making a documentary about the family. He's also president of the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington, an online museum without walls founded by his mother. So in terms of what level of grandfather Charles is to you? He is my fourth generation grandfather. Mm -hmm. Charles belonged to George Washington until the former president died in 1799. At that point, Charles and dozens of other slaves were inherited by Washington's step-grandson and adopted son. George Washington Park Custis, he was the one that left from Mount Vernon and then actually built Arlington House. And it was in Custis's stately home, now part of Arlington National Cemetery. So this is downstairs in the basement of the house. That I met up with Craig earlier this week. This is uh, where the slaves, as they were preparing meals and things like this, this is where the women mainly socialized as they worked. 
Those women included Charles's wife, a mulatto named Mariah, whose father was none other than George Washington Park Custis. Before she got married, she was Mariah Carter. George Washington Park Custis had relations with a slave named Aria Carter and had Mariah. Mariah was a maid, so clearly she didn't have the same privileges as Custis's other children. But she and her family did hold some status at Arlington. She and Charles were allowed to get married in the house. And as Craig tells me as we head upstairs, Mrs. Custis educated the couple's son and daughter right alongside her own kids. This is where they learned in this room. In 1826, George Washington Park Custis gave Mariah 17 acres of land within the Arlington House Plantation. It was on that land that Charles and Mariah had eight more children, all born free. Custis died in 1857, leaving Arlington House to his only surviving legitimate child, Mary Anna Custis Lee, who had married Robert E. Lee. Custis specified in his will that all of his slaves should be freed by 1862 and the government declared official emancipation one year later in 1863. And at that time is when uh, the government noticed that these slaves were just standing around loitering on people's property. And so they said, we need to structure something for these people. Thus, the government established Freedman's Village on part of the Arlington House estate, which it had seized in 1864 when Mary Anna Custis Lee failed to appear at the county courthouse to pay her taxes. The village had schools, a hospital, churches, a market, and of course, houses, though as Craig Syfax is quick to remind you, they still had to pay taxes as well as rent. More than 1,100 freed people, including some of Custis's former slaves, flocked to Freedman's Village. Charles Syfax was considered a leader there. And because Mariah and Charles's family had received a schooling at Arlington House, they taught the other African-Americans how to read and write. The Syfaxes were still living on the plot George Washington Park Custis had given Mariah in the 1820s. But Custis hadn't left any official documentation proving Mariah's right of possession. So when the government seized Arlington House in 1864, the family began to worry. And that's where one of the most well-known Syfaxes comes in. William Syfax. Mariah's son rose to prominence in Washington as a lawyer and educator. He was chief messenger of the Department of the Interior and a staunch advocate for the desegregation of D.C.'s public schools. After the war. William Syfax was the first African-American member of the Board of Trustees of Colored Schools of Washington. So that's why the school is named William Syfax School that was in the Syfax area of D.C. As in southwest D.C., where you can also find Syfax Gardens, a public housing community. But returning to Mariah's 17 acres of land, William Syfax brought the issue to Congress, arguing his mother should be able to keep her property. And in 1866, President Andrew Johnson signed the Bill for the Relief of Mariah Syfax, a move viewed as an early civil rights triumph. Records show the land stayed in the Syfax family until it was sold in 1901. But Craig Syfax says they'll soon reconnect with that land as the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington finally gets a brick-and-mortar home. We have established in stone that Arlington Cemetery will provide land for us to build. But no actual timeline yet? No actual timeline, no actual coordinates of space or square footage. But this is happening, and I would like to say that it will happen soon. The museum will highlight the Syfaxes, as well as other African-American families who have contributed to life in the region. Craig's cousin, Steve Hammond, says the aim is to teach the public about the African-American journey to freedom. 
one of the goals that I have is to help people see the value of studying their family history, to help the next generation to understand where they came from and where they're going. And until the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington is up on its feet, Hammond hopes to shed light on his own family's history by getting them featured at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, set to open on the National Mall next year. We have photos of the Syfax family on our website, metroconnection.org, as well as a link to a trailer for Craig's documentary. He'll be talking about that documentary at a Freedmen's Village event at Arlington House starting at noon on Saturday. So we just heard about Freedmen's Village and the former slaves who set up lives there. But this next story isn't about former slaves who were freed. It's about slaves who fled. These escaped individuals came to be known as contraband. The name was given to them by Benjamin Butler uh, because he referred to them as contraband of war, which meant uh, in case of the Union Army, they could not be returned. We could keep them. That's Sue Taylor, a public anthropologist in residence at American University. She says the contraband settled in Alexandria, Virginia, as well as Washington, D.C., where they sought protection at the city's system of forts. More than 150 years later, Taylor is leading a research project for the National Park Service to find the descendants of these long-ago freedom seekers. Metro Connection's Tara Boyle brings us the story. Our journey into Washington's Civil War past begins at a Starbucks on Wisconsin Avenue. Dr. Taylor? Sue Taylor and I are meeting on a mild fall morning in D.C.'s Tenleytown neighborhood. You want to drive up there? No, no, we can walk. As long as it's it's fine for you to walk, I'm fine walking. And heading to the highest point in D.C. So we're standing here at Fort Reno, which these days it's hard to imagine what it must have looked like 150 years ago. It's, It's basically athletic fields that we're standing on right now. What would it have looked like then? Can you imagine it? Well, it's hard to imagine what it would would have looked like, but there would have been uh, some earthworks, which would be like what we would call a bunker, I guess. Uh, probably there was a, a trough, like a like a ditch, um, it's where people could uh, essentially put their their guns would be um, pointed towards wherever the enemy might be coming from. Thousands of fugitive slaves flocked to spots like this across Washington. There was Fort uh, Battery Kimball, which is now part of Spring Valley and Palisades neighborhoods. Also, Fort Bunker Hill in Brooklyn and Fort Stevens in Tacoma Park. And there was Fort Slocum, which is near uh, Fort Totten, which we know of essentially as a metro stop right now. Across the Anacostia River, they sought refuge at places like Battery Carroll, Fort DuPont, and Fort Davis, and were quickly put to work building the city's fortifications. Sue Taylor says when the war was done, many former slaves decided to stay close to these forts that had sheltered them, but their lives here in the nation's capital were anything but easy. They weren't wanted to begin with. They struggled 
for jobs and probably lived very meagerly. Right here at Fort Reno, after the war, this land was divided up into plots, and it was sold for $25. Some of the freedom seekers were actually able to buy a lot, and they built houses here and lived here for a while, and then uh, and was known as Reno City at that point. It was eventually destroyed. These people were essentially pushed off. We had a situation at Reno City where whites and blacks were living together, basically, next to each other. And that, I think, upset some folk. And so what they did is simply destroyed that community that was here. And they have settled other places. And what people do is if you have relatives, you move in with relatives somewhere else, so you relocate wherever you can. What we're trying to find out is what happened to the fugitives from slavery who may have settled here at Fort Reno, for example. So we're trying to find descendants of some of these original refugees who actually came here. And what is the next step once you locate the descendants of these families? What we hope to do is to do some oral histories with them to find out what stories have been passed down through the the generations. And we hope that we can go back as far as the Civil War and see what they know and what stories have been told about the development of these communities. Why do you think this history has been somewhat overshadowed or forgotten in the the larger story of Washington, D.C. and in the Civil War? I don't think it was important to... (laughs) Washingtonians particularly, uh, particularly because we're, we're dealing with the African-American population, which is often neglected and stories are left untold. And it's approach to the story of the, the Civil War that hasn't been touched yet at all. I met with a genealogist, and, and we are trying to find descendants and work our way back. The other way may be to find the fugitives, and we can find names from, uh, say, uh, payroll records and, and the military and things like that. And if we can find names of people who were actually contraband, then we can work our way up to the uh, descendants. The thing is, people don't know their own history a lot. And I think uh, what this will do is not only um, help with family histories and family genealogies, but it will also uh, help tell the story of Washington, D.C., a different story. That was Dr. Sue Taylor, a public anthropologist in residence at American University, speaking with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. And we should note, WAMU is licensed to American University. Think you might be a descendant of D.C.'s contrabands? Want to learn more about Sue Taylor's study? Head to our website, metroconnection.org. After the break... A local woman works to recover her nearly lost Native American roots. It is very much a fragile, uh, surviving element. And we'll remember the activist known to friends and colleagues as Giat. We're talking about a man who endured a beating where he stood up the whole time. There's something in that. Stay with us. Those stories are coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're bringing you a show we're calling The Descendants. At the end of this month, the D.C. Council will consider a proposal to name part of U Street Northwest Lawrence Giot Way. Giot was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi. During his time in the South, he was beaten and imprisoned more times than he could count. But he helped lay the groundwork for the seminal Voting Rights Act of 1965. Politically, it was difficult for Giot to stay in Mississippi, so at the behest of his friend, D.C. council member and fellow Mississippi native Marion Barry, Giot made his way to Washington. And until his death two years ago, Giot was still organizing for civil rights in the district. Lauren Ober sat down with Giot's daughter, Julie Giot Diangone, to talk about her father and what it's like to be a child of the civil rights movement. So for people who don't know your dad, why don't you describe him for us? Uh, he's a force of nature. He is often described as courageous, fearless. He takes up a lot of space. When Giat's in the room, you know it. You know, it's not a secret. He had a, a resounding voice. There is no more progressive, creative, or organized civil rights movement anywhere in America other than Mississippi. Where else did a movement conduct its own election? Where else did a movement in a freedom election. It got 80,000 people to participate in it. We couldn't bring Mississippi into the country, but we could bring the country into Mississippi and get the federal government to understand and get the America to understand that the disenfranchisement done by Mississippi was done because they allowed it to happen. You know, Giat means to be really hard-headed about something that you believe in and work for it fervently. It's to sometimes be unlikable, but to be utterly unshakable in knowing the difference between what's right and wrong. What kind of father was he? A non-traditional one. He, he took me seriously. He took us seriously. And um, as intellects, as individuals, and uh, I don't remember any baby talk. All of our lullabies were, uh, were, were freedom songs, you know. Dad was authentic. That is how he viewed the world. And it was through a lens of, of constant, vigilant struggle. Giat told people what to do. But my dad was very gracious in leaving a lot of room for intellectual exploration at home. He didn't tell me what to do. He never told me an idea that I had to have. He didn't tell me that I had to think a certain way or believe in a certain thing. You know, he didn't tell me I had to vote. I had to vote. You know, you need a ride. You know, whatever. we're going to vote. You know, where's your sticker? I voted today. Where is it? I had to vote. Registering to vote at that time meant that you filled out a 22-question questionnaire. One of the questions was interpret any of the 286 sections of the Mississippi Constitution to the satisfaction of the registrar. Now, you have to bear in mind that some of those registrars couldn't read or write, but that didn't matter. They could still determine who should be registered if that person happened to be black. 
because all whites who attempted to register were registered. So Dad and Giat were two different people? Oh, yeah. I can't say what I want to say, but you know, you don't mess with Giat. <laughs> you fill that in however you need to. But Dad, you can, you can talk to all day long. How much of your father's work was talked about at home, or was it just a part of your everyday life? It was definitely part of everyday life. My dad would say everything is political. We're talking about a man who went to a dear friend's birthday party, not with flowers or with a nice Chardonnay, but with a book list of readings that all politically minded people should be reading. And it was, it was endearing. It was very much who he was. Your father, obviously, during his time in Mississippi, growing up in Jim Crow South, dealt with a lot of things that we don't deal with in in terms of violence. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if he talked about that at home, if you were aware of his experience of being in prison, being beaten, did he talk at all about that? Or was that sort of left at the front door? Okay, context. (laughs) I didn't know that going to jail was a bad thing. Just because every every good person I know has been to jail. One of the stories about my mother was, you know, they had all of the flatware taken away because they were banging on the cell bars, making music and singing freedom songs. And so that was taken away. You know, my mom would say, you know, if dad was grumpy, we're talking about a man who endured a beating where he stood up the whole time. There's something in that. He stood up the whole time. You know, stories of resilience and courage and fearlessness and guillot are shared in those tiny little details. That was Julie Guillot Diangone, daughter of civil rights leader Lawrence Guillot, talking with Metro Connections Lauren Ober. Now, you can't talk about the roots of our region without talking about its very first residents. Native Americans have lived in these parts for centuries, including the Patawomec tribe of Stafford, Virginia. In fact, the word Potomac is derived from the tribe's name. Now down to just 1,500 members, the Patawomec tribe is trying to resurrect its long-defunct language. Julie Alderman headed to Stafford to ancestral Patawomec lands to meet the woman who's inspiring others to get closer to their roots through language. Growing up, Becky Guy didn't know she was part Native American. It wasn't until her sister and mother conducted a genealogy project. They discovered through that process that there was Indian blood. Guy and her family come from the Curtis line. The Curtises came from Britain in the 17th century and intermingled with local Native Americans. Patriarch Curtis decided he was going up into Loudoun County and survey his land up there and check and make sure everything was going according to the way it should. So he rode up to the gate on his horse and there was a young Indian maiden standing at the gate and she opened the gate for him. He didn't have to dismount. So he flipped her a gold coin as he went through, and he said, if you're still here when I come back, I'll marry you. He came back. She was standing there. Many Patawomec who didn't marry into English families were either killed or became indentured servants. Guy says this caused a huge decline of the tribe's language for two reasons. 
one, of necessity, we had to learn the English language. Two, there was a concerted attempt to beat the savage out of us. Through years and generations, the last remnants of the language survived thanks to British linguist William Strachey, who lived among the Patawomac for two years and wrote about it in his book, The History of Travail. And he wrote down about 150 English words. British spelling, what it was in those days, left something to be desired, but it was pretty well phonetic. And so that's the reason why I think he, he recorded our language phonetically. Streaky's book is the basis of Guy's class, Reclaiming Our Language. Guy, a former high school foreign language teacher, has been teaching the class for five years. She has about a dozen students, whom she meets with on an individual basis and all together in Stafford. All of her students want to know more about their shared culture. I've got one girl in the class who pressed her grandmother over and over and over to tell her about the Indians, and her grandmother says, I'm not talking about it. And Jean wanted so badly to find out, you know? There was just this yearning. It's almost like an adopted child who wants to find out the biological parent. It's that kind of yearning. Guy says one of the biggest challenges of the course is the lack of vocabulary. Strachey did only write down 150 words, after all. Guy thinks the Patawomec people may not have been as verbal as we are today. I don't think our people were like me. They were very quiet people. And there was um, a lot of gestures with what they said. And if they wanted to say, there's a bluebird up there on that longest limb in that oak tree, and he is warbling beautifully, they would simply say to sheep, the bird, and point. But Guy does want her students to learn how to converse in their language. We had a little conversation that we always start the class off with. Mingapo chesteme. That's hello, friend. Patomak, patanini. I am a Potomac Indian. Kekarwink near Nakomas. My name is Nakomas. Kekarwink kier. What is your name? And while the language may not be understood by anyone else, Guy says it is imperative for students to learn in order to understand the cultures and themselves. It's part of their heritage. And it's amazing. I'm going to get emotional now. It's amazing to watch these people who have never had any exposure to their culture And when they are able to speak the language, it comes from within them. It's like years and years and years being awakened within them from a primitive time. And it's kind of like a light bulb goes on, you know. Well, that's how I feel. Becky Guy's Patawomec language class starts up again this month. I'm Julie Alderman. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. 
This week on Door to Door, we'll visit the Calvert Hills neighborhood of College Park, Maryland, and the Aquia Harbor area of Stafford, Virginia. My name is Tracy Mason, and my community that I live in is Aquia Harbor, Stafford. Aquia Harbor is located just south of Northern Virginia. You take 95 South, and it's Route 1 and 95 intersection. We have over 3,000 homes, uh, statistically over 12,000 people. We have three different sections in our harbor. Um, it is a small town, if you will. We have a lot of boats because we are located right on Aquia Creek that opens up to the Potomac. If you don't have a boat, meet a neighbor. You'll get on a boat. That's probably the only thing missing from Aquia Harbor. If it had an ocean, it would be 100% perfect. <laughs> we have young families that move in with young children or just starting to have children and then live here their entire lives and then their children live here. It is very much a generational community. Unless something drastically changes with this community, we're here for life and so are our kids. My name is John Rigg. I live in a neighborhood called Calvert Hills, which is in College Park, Prince George's County, Maryland. Calvert Hills is located, it's the southernmost neighborhood in the city of College Park. It's bounded by Riverdale Park on the south, the CSX train tracks and the College Park metro station on the east, Route 1 on the west, and Calvert Road to the north. The real defining feature of the neighborhood, in addition to its, its rootedness, are that it is one of the few neighborhoods that's close to the District of Columbia, close to cultural amenities, close to transit that you can still afford on a public sector salary or on a nonprofit salary. We have a lot of people in this neighborhood who work uh, with their hands for a living. We have a lot of people in this neighborhood who work for the University of Maryland for a living. And we have a lot of people like, uh, like myself who, who work downtown and rely upon the excellent transit connections to get there easily. This is one of the few neighborhoods in the, that I've uh, been aware of in the D.C. metro area where people just sort of let their kids run free through the neighborhood. It's, it's a safe neighborhood and you can do that. We heard from Tracy Mason in Aquia Harbor and John Rigg in Calvert Hills. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. In a minute... The family that once ruled D.C.'s beer-making business. You know how to tell a Washingtonian how they pronounce the word? If we say W-A-R, we're native. Wash or Wash, Washington. Plus, saving a ruined remnant along the CNO Canal. A building will quickly deteriorate if you don't use it. So we're lucky to be able to work with Colonial Dames to open this up again and keep it open. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're taking that notion of D.C. being a transient city, a place where nobody's actually from, and turning it on its head with a show we're calling The Descendants. Earlier, we met descendants of a prominent slave family dating back to colonial times, and later we'll hear from the granddaughter of the granddaddy of D.C.'s microbrew scene. But we'll start this part of the show 238 years ago in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania where a certain group of gentlemen 
is taking a certain vote. The secretary will call the roll. That will make history. New Hampshire. New Hampshire says yay. New Hampshire says yay. Massachusetts. Massachusetts says yay. Massachusetts says yay. Rhode Island says yay. Rhode Island says yay. Connecticut says yay. Connecticut This is a pivotal scene from the movie version of 1776, a musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the Second Continental Congress. Maryland. Maryland says yay. Maryland says yay. And those last three votes we just heard, Maryland, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, they bear a direct connection. Here is... His picture. To a woman whose home I recently visited in northwest D.C. So this is one of three signers mm-hmm. from whom you're descended? Mm-hmm. This is Samuel Chase of Maryland. I descend also from Oliver Wilcott of Connecticut and William Ellery of Rhode Island. Yep. Laura Bellman descends from not one, not two, but three signers of the Declaration of Independence. And, yep, she knows exactly what you're going to say. You're going to say, how did that happen? I am going to say, how did that happen? (laughs) It happened because three of my four grandparents each had a signer, you see, in their ancestry. And Laura Bellman is definitely up to speed on that ancestry. The amateur genealogist spent a whole lot of time documenting it when she joined the Society of the Descendants of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence, or mercifully for short, DSDI. Laura shows me a copy of the DSDI application form, which has a section titled Statement of Bloodline to Signer Ancestor. When you fill this out, you have to have a proof of birth, marriage, and death. So this is actually the one I just pulled off my desk. This is my son's, uh, and you see there... Where he was born and married, and then where my husband was born, and I was, and the marriage. And it goes right up to William Bedford, who married Mary Chase. And there you go. There's Samuel Chase. So then Samuel Chase is your great, great, great... I think it's five. I think five, yeah. As for what that, hold on, let me count here, great, 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 great grandfather was like, not only did he represent Maryland in the first and second Continental Congresses, but he was also an attorney, as well as judge of the Baltimore Criminal Court and Maryland General Court. He was then appointed to the Supreme Court by his buddy, George Washington. During the meetings of the Continental Congress, he and George Washington had a sort of lunch bunch at the city tavern. So he did keep good company. But, Laura adds, he didn't always keep composure. He had another characteristic, which was great, great force, and he was called Old Bacon Face because he would get so red in the face. In fact, during his time as a judge? In a fury, twice he jumped down from the bench. Nevertheless, today Laura Bellman is proud of her connection to Samuel Chase and the other two signers. In addition to being a DSDI member, she's also in the Colonial Dames of America, since she directly descends from at least one leader in the 13 colonies. And in 1976, 200 years after the Declaration's signing, the Colonial Dames of America rescued, in partnership with the National Park Service, the oldest house on the CNO Canal, the Abner Cloud House. It's where Reservoir Road debouches into Canal Road. And visitors can come a half dozen Sundays and have tours of it. So you must come visit that. And I did. Laura was out of town that day, so I had two guides, past Colonial Dame Chapter President Kay Titus. Are these the original stairs? This was the original way the house was. 
it's been refurbished. And Anna Wilson of the National Park Service. A lot was changed on the inside of the building when we did the restoration, just because it had sat empty for so long. So we were lucky to be able to work with Colonial Dames to open this up again and keep it open. Abner Cloud finished his three-story stone home and adjoining flour mill in 1801. But by the time the Park Service acquired the site in 1957, it was in ruins. Two decades later, says Kay Titus, the Colonial Dames stepped in. We put together a package of our own funding, money from the National Park Service, and money from Congress, if you can even believe that. (laughs) And we were able to put it back together. The Park Service does general maintenance, and the dames tend to upkeep and tours of the house, which Kay lovingly calls a demanding child. A demanding child means you raise funds uh, at least every two years, and we're looking at possible serious expenditures in the next little while, a new roof and things like that. Now, speaking of children, Kay and her own children descend from Colonel Thomas Ballard, Speaker of the House of Burgesses in Virginia. My children sort of get a bit pale if I start talking about their ancestors, but I have two wonderful granddaughters, and I would like to let them know, you know, who their ancestors were at some point. Laura Bellman says her family is actually pretty similar. But a ray of hope came a few years back when her grandchildren visited Philly to tap the Liberty Bell, a privilege offered to everyone who descends from Declaration of Independence signers. We had been told that they have to be able to answer the question, who were your ancestors? So the little one going, I am descended from William Ellery of Rhode Island and Oliver Wilkett of Connecticut. Pause. Samuel Chase of Maryland. It was a great challenge for the little ones, but they, they managed it. And she hopes they'll also manage to keep the family story going from generation to generation to generation. The next open house at the Abner Cloud House is Sunday, November 2nd. We have information on our website, metroconnection.org. And do you have a signer of the Declaration of Independence in your direct bloodline? We have a link to the DSDI membership page on our website, too. That's metroconnection.org. We're going to raise our glasses now to a family who played a starring role in the story of D.C. beer. At the turn of the 20th century and into the early 1940s, a German immigrant named Christian Heyrich was king of Washington's brewing industry. Lauren Landau met up with Heyrich's grandchild, Jan Hauser, to chat about her family's history and how she's keeping the Heyrich legacy alive. There's a house in DuPont Circle, a mansion-turned-museum known as the Brewmaster's Castle. Built in the 1890s by Christian Heyrich, the late Victorian property stands out amidst the high-rises of New Hampshire Avenue. Family matriarch Jan Allison King Evans Hauser is one of Heyrich's 11 grandchildren. My grandfather was born in 1842 in Turingen, Germany. He was orphaned as a young boy and He traveled by foot all over Europe, learning to be a brewer 
and a butcher because in those days they were coupled. His sister had already settled in Baltimore by the time Christian came to the United States in 1866, just after the Civil War. The young entrepreneur found his way to Washington, where he founded the Christian Heyrick Brewing Company. Jan says her grandfather treasured his American citizenship. And he had a flag downstairs, so it would be the first thing he saw when he came home and the last thing he saw when he left. And when questioned about his allegiance to Germany, he would say Germany was his mother, but America was his bride. Christian lived to the age of 102, making him the world's oldest active brewer. At one point, he also won the title of D.C.'s oldest dad in a contest held by the Evening Star. Unbeknownst to him, some friends entered him. And at, I think, 96, he was the oldest father in the metropolitan area. So they came to interview him. And they said, now, Mr. Hyrick, what's your secret to longevity? And he said, live in moderation and drink his beer. As a prominent Washingtonian, Christian was an active member and supporter of local groups, including the German Orphan Home, the National Symphony Orchestra, and the oldest inhabitants of Washington, which celebrates its 150th anniversary next year. We are the oldest civic group in the city of Washington. They were on hard times for a while. And they realized that unless they took in women, they probably couldn't survive. Otherwise, of course, they never would have taken in a woman. And I was the first woman, and I'm now vice president of the board. Although she's a fifth-generation Washingtonian, Jan was actually born in Hawaii at Schofield Barracks, where her father was stationed. Her family moved around the country, living at different army posts before returning to Washington. My father went overseas and was killed at Normandy. My grandfather, a German, was still alive, and I think it had to be hard on the family, but everybody's sentiments were with the United States, and I just actually, in June, I took both my daughters and all five of my grandchildren to Normandy for the 70th anniversary. Her mother married another military man, General Eugene Harrison, who was eventually assigned to Japan. Soon after the family moved to Kyoto, a major earthquake shook the region. Jan remembers taking cover in a doorway, watching a chandelier swing back and forth. Her mother was hosting a dinner party that night with all the top brass. The earthquake came about 5.20, and we didn't know where it was because they were out of communication. I was only 15, so I wasn't invited to be at the dinner. But I was handy for them to utilize to do the telephones to MacArthur's headquarters from our house. After returning from Japan, Jan started taking up her grandparents' interests. She became involved in a number of civic groups and served on the boards of the Cathedral School for Girls, the Red Cross, and the Women's Bank of Washington, to name a few. But she says her biggest role has been caring for loved ones. After her stepfather died in 1981, she took over the family finances and became a caregiver for her mother. I was a caregiver for my grandmother, Louis. I was the eldest granddaughter, and I had the full care of her for years. And then the caregiver for my first husband, and then for my second husband, who died of Alzheimer's. So I'm now free, footless and fancy free for the first time since 1981, Uh, but I miss them all. Despite her family's impressive longevity, Jan was a bit pessimistic when she reached her 80th birthday. A year and a half ago, I thought, well, this is the end of life. And I thought, no, Jan, your mother's still alive at the time, and she's 26 years older than you, so you've got another quarter of a century. Get going, gal. (laughs) And she isn't slowing down. 
Jan keeps herself busy managing the family real estate and says she's confident that she's secured her family's financial future. There is still the issue of maintaining Hyrick House, but as Jan says, it's a work in progress. I'm Lauren Landau. Before we say goodbye today, let's take our monthly look at DC's literary scene. It's bookend. This time around, Metro Connection's Jonathan Wilson sits down with award-winning children's book author Erica Pearl. She's written 10 books for young readers, including her latest, Goatee Locks and the Three Bears. That's Goatee Locks as in G-O-A-T. Jonathan met up with Erica Pearl in her downtown D.C. office, where she works her other job, vice president of First Book, a nonprofit providing books to children in need. Growing up, were you a writer? I mean, were you, did you know early on, you know, I have this creative side of me that I need to get out? I mean, in college, did you know that you were, you know, going to turn to this world? I did. I, you know, I was that kid who was always writing and reading and drawing and making up stories. Um, and that was really my identity as a kid growing up. And when I went to college, I was very interested in doing that. And then I sort of took a turn and somehow found myself in law school, as I think a lot of people do. Um, which I enjoyed for a long time, and I actually worked for several years as a public defender because I really liked the idea of telling my clients stories. But the problem was that in the world of criminal law, you're kind of stuck with the facts. And I love fiction, and so I started working on my stories that I could make up, and it didn't really matter whether it was true or not. So that seems like a huge jump. I did uh, an interview with another author, Alison Leota, who's worked as a prosecutor and now writes mysteries. And that yeah. seems to you know make a little more logical <laughs> sense. You're working as a public defender, working with very weighty issues, I would imagine. And then you go to creating these you know fanciful children's worlds. Was that unexpected? I mean, for a lot of your friends, did they know that you had this side? I think they did. I think most people who know me know that I have a very a seriously silly side. <laughs> But, you know, for me, I didn't actually make this connection. I didn't go about this with a big plan. But a lot of the clients that I had when I was a public defender were people whose circumstances were really compelling and who had grown up without a lot of books, without a lot of resources, and were in terrible situations as a result. And so a lot of what I try to put into my books is to make them incredibly relatable for kids, make them books that kids want to grab off the shelf and want to spend time with and want to connect with. I'm wondering how you experience people's perception of children's book authors. First of all, other authors, but also the public, because I imagine a lot of people would come up to you and think, like, I can do this too. Do you get a lot of that? It's funny. When I, when I sold my first book, a friend of mine who was uh, editing a literary journal said to me, do you have any idea how hard this is, like how you know, many people try to do this. And I, I, it sort of took me back because I didn't quite realize going into this that that was the case. And it's even more, you know, now 10 or so years later, it's even more competitive and hard to break into this field. More so, than other, Even more than other genres? I think so. I mean, it's true that there are a lot of books coming out, but there are, there's a very limited range of picture books being printed. And also there's the kind of thing where if a book does well, a zillion copies of it are printed, but then for those who need to kind of grow a career more slowly, it's very hard to kind of gain a foothold. And there are many people who are working very, very hard to kind of establish their writing and who need their audience. So 
speaking from my own experience in terms of the children's book world, I think there are people who assume that anybody can do it. You can toss these off. I, I, I encourage them to try, really, because it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. I, I hope we make it look easy, but honestly, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And then there are other people who just immediately, if you start talking to them, they're like, oh, I've always wanted to do that, and who I think romanticize that it's just this perfect, wonderful thing. And it's hard. I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, I still get um, editorial feedback on my work. I don't automatically have everything I write just go on to get snapped up by publishers. And I, I struggle like anyone. And I work to make my writing and my craft better at all times. It's not like I think at this point I can just rest on my laurels and toss things off. We, we all have to go back and do the hard work. Has it been the same for all your books? Have you just, a characters pop into your mind, a plot, and then you go from there? Or is it certain words that get you? It's different for every book. It really is. And they come to me in funny ways and in funny snippets. I mean, my book, When Life Gives You OJ, I thought it was a picture book, and I started writing it as a picture book, and then I realized that the characters and everything I was trying to say were much, much longer and more complicated, and there was a, a story behind what I was writing about a relationship between a grandchild and a grandparent, and that led to a novel. But I didn't go into it thinking that was what I was writing. And Goldilocks is another example, because I started writing it, and I actually got stuck at a certain point, and the ending was the hardest part because, you know, you think you don't want to just retell the old story. I didn't want it to just, I wanted to create something fresh. And so I wrote what I thought was a very funny tale, and it sat for the longest time because I just couldn't finish it. I couldn't figure out what would work for the characters. And so I had to come back to it later, which I do sometimes. I regularly put a project on the shelf and work on something else, and then out of nowhere I'll come up with another idea, or someone will help me. In the case of Goldilocks, I had a kid that I was friends with who, who was one of my daughter's friends, and she worked with me on the book, essentially, and helped me <laughs> workshop the ending until it got to a point where... where Tough editor. Yeah, she was brutal. But sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you need a fresh set of eyes, or you need to just give it some time. That was author Erica Pearl talking with Jonathan Wilson. You can hear more of their conversation on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, Tara Boyle, and Julie Alderman. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. This week's door-to-door producer is John Hines. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and to the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click this week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can tune in next week when we do away with our usual thematic approach and bring you one of our wild cards shows. We'll explore the ups and downs of one local hospital. We'll visit an unexpected haven for the city's punk and hardcore music scenes. We'll wish a happy 75th birthday to a quintessential DC movie. And we'll meet the woman whose camera captures one of life's most transformational moments. It's just this beautiful, monumental time that really deserves to be documented so that you can look back. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.